0: Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Emily B. Finley, author of The Ideology of Democratism. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Emily.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: At the end of your book, you bring up an interesting—you Well, you bring it up throughout the book. But I think before we get the conversation going about this term you coined called democratism, we could—and the book itself tries to pin down what this could mean, but one of your observations, which is something that has struck me over the years, especially in 2016— is criticisms of populism as being anti democratic. So you'd hear people say, you know, we had these populist elections, whether it was Brexit, Donald Trump, uh, other people throughout Western Europe and the Western world saying they're against democratic norms. This is not democracy. And on some basic level, that seems incoherent because if the most people vote for you and you appeal to the most people popularly, then that is democracy. So, what does that say about the general idea that you come up with in the book and talk about democratism?
1: Yeah, um, it's such an interesting paradox that we can be told repeatedly that um, the will of not even necessarily a majority, but even just a plurality of people um, that are operating from within the democratic process, that that could somehow be anti democratic or a threat to democracy. We hear it so often now. that it, it's a phrase that's kind of lost its meaning, but in a sense, it it really is a window into this ideology. Um, and so it, it can be said by uh, somebody like Biden in his recent speech that the MAGA wing of the Republican Party is a threat to our republic and that these people are threatening our democracy. He can say something like that without apparent contradiction because he subscribes to this very... Um, widespread and pervasive notion of democracy that has very little to do with actual popular rule. And so we've been under the influence of a Rousseauian understanding of democracy for the last couple of centuries. Rousseau really lays the blueprint for this understanding in the social contract in which he comes up with this idea of the general will. And the general will is what the people's will ought to be. And so it's this ahistorical ideal of the popular will that Rousseau says does not necessarily need to reflect what the people actually desire. And very often it doesn't. The particular wills of individual people very often go against this hypothetical and ideal general will. And so um, that that sounds maybe very philosophical, but at its core, this basic idea... That's okay. Of we do a-
0: philosophy on the show. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, <good. laughs> I'll jump in and make sure you're clarifying, but we do economics, okay. philosophy, everything, so go for it.
1: Great. So at its very core, this idea of a hypothetical and ideal popular will that is over and above the actual historical will of the people was informing Biden's speech, and he probably has not even read Rousseau. And so many people who subscribe to this idea might not even be familiar with Rousseau's ideas. But Rousseau's understanding of democracy is now, I argue, the, the, the formative um, and, and prevailing understanding of democracy for so many in the West. I give many examples of people who understand democracy in the sense from uh, Thomas Jefferson. And Woodrow Wilson to the American neoconservatives. It informed um, the Bush doctrine. It has informed US foreign policy uh, since at least the time of Wilson, arguably back to McKinley. Um, but it it's a new notion of democracy that is at its core, pretty anti-democratic.
0: Well, the, the question I think my listeners are thinking, are, one, is this a like pro-populism book, uh, which It's not, depending on how we define it, part of it is defining what it would mean to be populism. And then the second one is, is your foil for this concept of democracy, just pure majoritarianism mob rule is what democracy really is. And these other people have a a perverted sense of democracy.
1: No, for both questions. Um, The first is this pro-populism. I actually started writing this book um, as my dissertation in 2015, before the rise of Donald Trump and the populist movement in America. And so it was actually really interesting to watch that unfold and to see how it related to these ideas that I had been talking about. And so when in 2016, everyone start in in at least the corporate media started to uh, accuse the populists of being anti-democratic, I said, aha, I've seen that before. <laughs> I have a, a whole bunch of chapters on that. Um, and so I guess, it, it certainly isn't a pro-populist book, but maybe it's an apology in the classical sense of the term for populism. In a certain sense, it's at least um, trying to expose how uh, populism can't really be uh, anti-democratic except for in this very particular sense if we understand democracy to be an ideal and a hypothetical rather than the actual practice of popular rule. Um, and then as far as uh, um, the
0: second question... Direct democracy, mob, mob rule, is that is that the ideal then?
1: No, not at all. And I, I try to differentiate in this book between um, democratism and uh, republicanism in the classical sense. Um, republicanism as something that Founding fathers such as John Adams um, or Hamilton. Uh, those were two exponents of a view that was a viewpoint that opposed Jeffersonian democracy, which I categorize as a democratist view of democracy. And so um, I'm trying to juxtapose I mean, we don't have a democratic, we're not an American democracy, we're a constitutional republic. And so I'm trying to differentiate between that idea of representative democracy and then this idea of democratism, which is ideological in the sense that um, it, its exponents are not really being forthright. They are the loudest champions of democracy, but then you look at their policies and what they're actually asking for, and they, they have um, a disdain for ordinary people. And they're actually not interested in the will of the majority or in taking to account even um, a plurality of voices. They have a very specific understanding of what they want society to look like. And so they call that democracy. And they say that anything that threatens their ideal is anti-democratic, but it doesn't actually necessarily need to take into account the popular will at all.
0: Well, on one level, it's it's important if you're going to support democracy and, of course, depending on how you define it, is a fairly is post-Enlightenment democracy is new. We have Athenian democracy, which is a little different, but it does require some belief about the nature of human beings and what kind of choices they are they can make and they can make in a valid way. Um, with education, with knowledge of, of different competing viewpoints, with knowledge of the nature of government, that if the people are completely benighted, let's just say North Koreans, right? That if they let them vote, but not let them hear any viewpoints, not educate them, would it be valid to say that whatever the North Koreans came up with within a system of not hearing opposing viewpoints, not being educated, is an example of democracy as opposed to something that we need a richer conception of to figure out what the will of the people actually might mean?
1: Yeah, I think there needs to be some meaningful input from the people. and like you say, if there was some sort of "quote unquote" democratic election in North Korea, uh, I think we would all look at that and say that that doesn't actually um, incorporate any any um, meaningful input from the people. And so, um, a chapter in my book that I um, ad- I address this phenomenon in not not such an extreme way, but um, I I tackled deliberative democracy, which is a school of thought that is a arguably dominant within certainly within democratic theory or at least it was when i was writing this book a couple of years ago and it's been enormously influential no, no, in it still is. political <laughs> science yeah yeah
0: it's yeah it still is <laughs>
1: it's enormously influential and so from all the research i was conducting on deliberative democracy there would be some quibbles within deliberative democracy about uh, how to change the rules of the game a little bit or how to tweak things so we can incorporate, uh, different voices. But I, it was rare that I could find, um, anybody who was really going at the foundation of deliberative democracy as, as highly problematic, which is what I was arguing, which is that the very paradigm of deliberative democracy is a much more watered-down version of what you're talking about, what happened in North Korea. So I hesitate to even make that comparison, but um, it's it's the same concept, deliberative democracy. It has this uh, pretense to be highly democratic. It's about trying to um, incorporate the will of the people, the voice of the people through dialogue, dialoguing in order to get true democracy. But when you really read um, the the works of these uh, deliberative democratic theorists, you see that there are all kinds of different rules and parameters for appropriate discussion and who can and can't say what. Um, and you see that actually they have a normative outcome that they're aiming for. And so all of these different um, parameters for what's appropriate discussion, it's already set up to lead to their um, sort of preordained conclusion about what democracy ought to look like. And so if, if at the outset, the rules are set up that you can't actually discuss certain topics or, um, you know, the, the system is set up a certain way, then, then how democratic is that really?
0: Well, the, the, the normative point is something that has occurred to me, that, that there's a normative underlying claim to, the, to what seems to be a process claim. Uh, that I've, I've, I've had this come up in my career at Cato many times, especially in the campaign finance world where that the idea of different voices allowed to speak and to influence the people, um, is not democratic. If it's certain voices who are telling them, maybe we shouldn't have labor unions or single payer healthcare and that the single payer healthcare is like a normative outcome would be the output of a truly deliberative process, or something from the right, like foreign policy excursions, as you write about in the book, that if it was all fair in some sense of the word, then the, tr- the output of this democratic process would produce the normative political conclusions that I personally want as the theorist, which seems to underlie a bunch of this. And as you pointed, especially the deliberative democracy theorists um, who don't tend to be you know, libertarians or conservatives to say the least in terms of their substantive policy proposals.
1: Yeah, they they claim that they're just setting up this procedural politics. And so the procedure itself is empty of um, normative claims, and it's empty of values. But if you really look at it, the procedures themselves are substantive. And there are certain commitments that are being made in those very procedures. And so, um, I argue that the, the way that these procedures are all set up is it's right in line with the ideology of democratism.
0: Yeah. One of the things in is having like fair and balanced information within the procedure, but who gets to supply that information? Uh, for example, uh, what is fair and balanced if you're talking about, uh, like say gun policy, does the NRA get to contribute a fair and balanced report to that? Um, or if you're talking about certain science policy, do people who believe that the Earth is flat get to be involved in the policy discussion? And how do you determine that at the outset? But I want to go back to the beginning, as you as you said, this starts in your in your thesis with Rousseau um, and the general will, and whether or not he he's been labeled as a Proto-fascist as a proto-totalitarian, by many people as sort of the progenitor of those who want to dominate society in the in the claim that this is what the people really want. Um, What is the general will to Rousseau, and how does that like percolate down the wick? We can get to the other theorists, but how does it like become the kind of basis for democratism?
1: Yeah, the general um, will—it's hard to pin down because Rousseau himself um, isn't exactly clear about the general will, but. In essence, it is um, the ideal of the popular will. And so he says that there is uh, the general will, and then there is the will of all. And the general will can never err. It it can never be in the wrong. Um, It is what all of the people would desire if they were thinking rationally and if they were at their best. The uh, will of all, on the other hand, is just simply majority rule. And so that can be wrong, and it often is wrong. That's just the historical aggregate of all of the people's individual wills, uh, and there's nothing special about that. And so politics ought to be guided by this ideal general will, because it can never be wrong. And so then the question obviously arises, which is, how do we instantiate this perfect will, since it is the elevation of of this collective will of the people in, in the sort of mystical sense Um, and Rousseau's answer to that question is through a, a legislator figure. Um, and this legislator as Rousseau describes him is almost like a, a God. He's some kind of deity who, who brings into existence the people. Um, and he, um, he is able to elevate the people into a corporate body that had not existed before. And so the, that is how the ideal general will is brought into being. And then um, in, in a particularly chilling passage, Rousseau says that because this general will is all that it should be and ever will be, any individual will that goes against it is um, is wrong. And these people who are uh, we could think of the phrase voting against their best interest. We've heard that so many times, especially in 2016. Those people who are going against what is actually in their best interest, they'll need to be forced to be free. And so Rousseau goes so far as to say that the, the man who who is a threat to the social fabric by opposing the general will, he can even be killed. And he would not be killed as a citizen, so Rousseau is already um, finding a way to segregate the people who are outside of the democratic process. So he's not even considered a citizen anymore because he's going against the general will. And so to eliminate him, to kill him, would not be uh, would not be wrong, and it wouldn't be immoral. He's not even killed as a moral person. Rousseau says he's just simply killed as an enemy, and we can see how that uh, translates into what we witness today with the overreach of the state and with these democratists who are claiming to be acting in the name of democracy and who who try to um, cordon off part of the population as extremists and as anti-democratic. And so we can safely exclude those people from the democratic process because they're not acting democratically anyways.
0: What are the metaphysics of the human in Rousseau's mind, and this will come up, of course, with other theorists, especially Jefferson, um, in line with this. but what is his view of the human animal as such that you can do something to find like the, the true nature of the human, the romantic element of Rousseau, and that the, di- the diverting from that via, you know, say, academia, which is you know different people of like high station who, who would teach people, are actually perverting people away from like a noble savage, of course, the term associated with Rousseau so much, but perverting them. And that that's why we can stop. We, we can stop people from perverting the general will. And we try to establish a general will by creating a unified core metaphysical reality of the way human beings are in a way.
1: So if I'm understanding correctly, uh, Rousseau, he makes certain assumptions about human nature and about the way that people interact. Um, Rousseau, I think uh, what is, uh, crucial to his politics is his view of human nature, which is that human beings are essentially good. Um, and so if human beings are essentially good, then how to explain the evils that we see, um, especially what Rousseau identifies as one of the prime evils, which is inequality, how to explain that if we're all actually at our core, good. Rousseau says that it's, um, perverted, social institutions, um, institutions like the church, uh, the arts and sciences, even um, custom, culture, uh, all of our our history. This is just uh, accidental and perverse. And these are, these institutions just benefit the few who use them to oppress the many. And so in order to liberate people, Rousseau believes that these institutions need to be torn down. And so that's why he has this revolutionary new politics that levels. There's no role for leadership in the social contract. Um, there's just this great legislator figure who I argue, actually, um, it, this has a lot in common with Hobbes' Leviathan. Uh, they they would seem to be opposite arguments um, Hobbes argues that uh, human na- uh, that um, the state of nature is such a chaotic place and that human beings are uh, naturally enemies of one another. And so there needs to be a, a strong leviathan to create order. And this would seem to be the opposite of Rousseau's theory, which is that human beings need to be liberated. But if you look at the social contract and... Uh, you really read about the legislator and the role that the legislator is to play, it actually parallels the Leviathan in, in a few ways. Um, and so for Rousseau, the naturally good human beings, we can be liberated and we can be restored in a certain sense to the pre-civil um, state of freedom, not completely, Rousseau says, but we can regain a part of that by releasing ourselves from these perverted social institutions that act as so many chains upon our um, spontaneous wills.
0: Our, our real, I'm putting that in scare quotes, our real spontaneous wills, which conglomerated apparently are the general will, which is like, which is another aspect of this that I enjoyed immensely in the book, That something I've worked on in the policy realm, that one thing that comes up with a lot of democratists as you would expect it would, because if you're trying to figure out, you know, you don't like the will of the people as it's manifested just through sheer voting, but you believe that there's a more real, again, however you define, will of the people that should be actualized. And one of the things you might pursue, therefore, is education policy uh, in the, from the state to try and make sure that the people are actually having real wills. Uh, and real opinions versus having fake ones in some sense. Uh, And so you have Rousseau with a very interesting, very specific view on education. You mentioned that he talks about the bathwater temperature that young children should be raised in to, I don't know, keep their humors balanced or something. Uh, But another one who, who my favorite chapter of your book is the Jefferson chapter because he needs to be thrown under the bus way more than he is. Uh, And, not just because of the slavery thing, but definitely because of that too. Um, and the the raping of Sally Hemings. But Jefferson was more Rousseauian in this sense, too, in, in how he viewed human the, the authentic human will and where that would come from and also the role that education would play in that.
1: Yeah. Um, Jefferson was a thoroughgoing Rousseauian. There's so many parallels between the two of them. Their views on human nature are very similar, that human beings are essentially good. And yet the two of them land on a politics that really tries to circumvent people as they actually are. Um, Jefferson is remembered as a a champion of democracy, um, as uh, a lover of just ordinary people. But when you read his writings, he really believes that his countrymen ought to to change in some fundamental ways. He is known for having this sort of dual uh, commitment to agrarianism and the pastoral life. He was a gentleman farmer. Um, uh, but at the same time, he was this tinkerer, enlightenment figure who who um, believed that the sciences ought to be pushed. he um, he advocated for the government sponsorship, the national government sponsorship of the sciences. Um, and and he he believed that farming practices ought to be updated, and that that ultimately the the views and the religious views of his countrymen, Ought to be um, modernized, and he he railed against um, superstitious beliefs and priestcraft, as he called it. And he just he had the Jefferson Bible, which was his um, quote unquote historical interpretation of the Bible, where he scrubbed it of anything that he believed was a superstition or miracles that couldn't be substantiated empirically. Um, and this went, uh, this went against the, the views of many of his countrymen who he claimed to, to celebrate and who he, um, in, in, uh, many instances was, was applauding. And so there's that, that twin side to democratists where they celebrate the people and they seem to be the people's, uh, champions. They are most vocally for democracy, um, And democracy that's not even necessarily mediated through representatives. They want pure democracy. But at the same time, these are the people who believe that they want pure democracy from uh, people expressing their viewpoints. And so while they are calling for pure democracy, at the same time, they're calling for these rigorous educational measures that will ensure that the people's viewpoints are what they ought to be, according to the democratists. So that is why you get these um, treatises on education from people like Jefferson and and Rousseau because we can't just leave something as important as our elections up to an irresponsible and unreliable electorate. We need to make sure that they vote the right way. Um, And so, uh, yeah, Rousseau's Emile, his treatise on education, he called that his most important work. And you can see why, because this is his chance to, to, be, um, to play the role of like an architect of the human soul. It's, it's kind of perverse in a certain way. He's really indulging in absolute control uh, over the child and um, everything down to the temperature of the bathwater is supposed to control how this child is going to emerge. And it's all very ironic or paradoxical. Because he assumes the child to be uh, to be just a spontaneous uh, creature of nature, And yet Rousseau is is clear that the tutor is guiding this child toward a certain outcome. Um, and, and Jefferson, his ward system, as he called it, which was going to um, it was going to decentralize government and it was going to provide for this form of direct democracy. So on its face, it looked very democratic and incorporated the um, an, an element of education and how how the school system was going to be created. Uh, it looks very democratic on its face, but then you see that Jefferson also is indulging in in this hypothetical where he gets to be in control of everything. He's redrawing districts. He's coming up with this rational plan for democracy. So there's something very paradoxical about that because at, at, at bottom, these people, these democratists, need to get rid of existing norms and existing ways, which is actually supremely democratic because these are the actual practices of the people. And so when that needs to be scrapped for this rational plan of the philosopher, you end up with something that's very undemocratic.
0: There, a question I've asked... In different areas that I work in, which I think this, your thesis of your book touches on some areas. I mentioned campaign finance and other, how we're going to control the political conversation and who's going to control it. I also think that the drug prohibition has elements of this where we're trying to prevent the people from indulging or becoming people we don't want them to be. And it it has this question that hangs is, are, are the people supposed to craft the state or is the state supposed to craft the people? And since the state comes after individuals, like, you know, it's going to have to require some sort of control if it's going to take over the job of crafting the people in the name of democracy, which, again, is ironic to say the least. Your next – well, not the next, but the other chapter, which I also liked a lot because, you know, he's not, to say the least, my favorite person. And you can tell there's a lot of vitriol in the word of your Woodrow Wilson chapter, uh, entirely deserving. uh, But he is also a democratist who didn't really either like the will of the people or care about it and thought it should be in a specific way oriented to his ideology.
1: Yeah, Woodrow Wilson. There was one author who I quote um, in that chapter who describes Wilson in a way that is so reminiscent of Rousseau. He says that he's this idealist. He's a poet. That w- that Wilson was most at home when he was just in his own imagination and crafting, essentially, the world as it ought to be in his mind. And um, and you just you think of Rousseau, this romantic idealist, who the two of them um, come up with with this vision of the world as it could be, and so what happens is this romantic bipolarity when you begin with a vision of reality that, um, or when you begin with a vision of the world that defies reality and it defies what has been possible historically, then you end up with, um, you end up with this, uh, depressed conclusion where, um, where, I guess when, when the, the reality comes crashing home, that that is not a possibility, that that idyllic vision is not actually possible, then it, the vision swings in the opposite direction. And so there's so many passages um, throughout Rousseau where he, he just he comes across as like a middle school girl as he's just lamenting that the world isn't as it should be, and all of humanity is his enemy. Um, he's he never blames himself. At one point, he says, "At least I am not to blame." <laughs> I know that, and the same for Wilson. These these people who who are untethered from reality they they end up with um, a very dark side to them that can manifest through violence, through a rebellion against reality. We see that in Wilson's foreign policy. He begins with his his fourteen points and this very optimistic. View of what's possible after the war. He believes, you know, he wanted to make the world safe for democracy. And then, what did we get? We got the Second World War, and that was in large part due to the idealism of Wilson and believing that you could, um, you could liberate humanity at the stroke of a pen at a peace conference that was that was um, attended by the very orchestrators of the carnage in the first place. Uh, It's preposterous.
0: And of course, Wilson is in his writings at Princeton, um, constitutional government, congressional government starts creating the first seeds of the administrative state, which is explicitly and intentionally anti-democratic. It's a way of making sure that people don't necessarily get what they want because of experts. And of course, if he was really for democracy in this sense of let the will of the people be expressed, heard and actualized in some sense, then you know, he probably wouldn't have spent so much time crushing anti-war opinion during World War One and before in a way that hadn't been seen since the Alien and Sedition acts. It's a that, that's a perfect example of how a, a democratist, someone who's supposedly pro-democracy, Comes in and says, Well, yeah, what we really need to do is this war, and that's in the best interest. And if you knew better, you would understand this. In order to make that happen, I'm going to make sure that people can't criticize me and my government and the war that we're fighting in Europe.
1: Yeah, exactly. You see that he's crushing democracy at home in the name of democracy abroad. And so this is so fundamental to the democratist mindset, which is that uh, the American system is inefficient. And we saw this with Obama needing to get around the inefficiency of the separation of powers, of Congress. Um, actually, the founders, they designed um, the separation. Well, to be
0: fair, we've seen that with pretty much every president and more and more bipartisan. Trump, yeah, Trump wanted to build a wall. Biden's doing this. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And so that idea of needing to get around the efficiency of the American system in the name of democracy uh, is very democratist at its heart. Um, and for Wilson, I think philosophically what this comes down to is, um, is a mistaken notion that the ends are separate from the means. And so the idea that we can use whatever means we need to, if it's in the name of the ideal, if it's in the, in the name of democracy with a capital D, that is a flawed way of thinking because the means are the end. And so if you are using undemocratic means, you are never going to end up with a democratic end. You are going to end up with exactly what the means that went into it are. And so uh, in the chapter on um, the hard Wilsonians, the neoconservatives in the Bush administration and that foreign policy, these uh, the, the means are the ends. And we now get to witness that, sadly, in Iraq and Afghanistan, which was that the um, Going, trying to liberate these nations by force and um, creating the eruption of civil wars, the proliferation of, of new terror groups, it's not magically down the road going to result in Western style democracy.
0: Yeah, the chapter on the neocons is very interesting. Um, but there's more, even more than animates that. I mean, it's, it's, it's the American messianic mission which is maybe the fullest expression of democratism that we're out there spreading democracy, you know, sort of like Minkins, like the theory that the people know what they want and they deserve to get it good and hard. And like that, actually what the Iraqis want, like inside, I can't remember who you quote inside every Iraqi is a, it's a facetious quote is just an American wanting to get out was so much of the background claims essentially before the Iraq war more so than the Afghanistan war and that this is actually just the fate of humanity as ordained by god or whatever whatever reason it is the fate of humanity and therefore it is fully okay for america to do horrific things in the name of spreading democracy in the most non-democratic way you could possibly imagine i mean sure we set up puppet elections and puppet people to be elected so we could pretend we were doing it, but ultimately it, that really wasn't the goal. the goal. The goal was also the idea that this was just what the people wanted and they didn't know it yet.
1: Yeah, exactly. It comes back to the Rousseauian idea of the general will. We imagined that there was this general will for democracy in the Middle East and that the good people of Iraq deep down desired American-style democracy and so we were going to go over there and give it to them, <laughs> one way or another, by force, but at gunpoint, as Max Boot was so eager to to say. Um, and uh, so it it does; it it still comes back to Rousseau's idea of the general will, and that that is the general will put into foreign policy practice. Um, and there is also this element of a historical determinism to it, to that ahistorical ideal of democracy, which is that the world is trending toward democracy. Um, history, the, the locomotive of history is moving toward democracy with a capital D. It's really not so different from communism, um, from what the Soviets believed, that the, the globe was trending toward communism and the communist revolutions were simply meant to ex- accelerate the historical process. Well, the same we had the same mentality with Iraq and Afghanistan, and with democratism more generally, there is this underlying assumption of the deliberative democratists. It was there in um, in Jefferson. It was there in Wilson that the domestically and across the globe, we are moving toward this ideal of democracy. And so through revel- through revolution, through force, we're going to get there. We're going to help to accelerate the historical process.
0: And Rawls, which uh, we've talked about Rawls a lot on this show over the years, uh, And I studied him a lot in in college, but there's – he's in the deliberative democracy element that uh, if you created a system wherein people could fairly choose what they really want – again, I'm putting those in in scare quotes uh, for those who can't see us, which is everyone – then we would produce – I'm essentially – social a social democracy of western european style which is baked into the system in a strange way it's like the arc of the universe is long and it bends towards single-payer health care seems to be the underlying assumption and we get to there by crafting a system where we make sure that people can't use their own values and beliefs to choose and then they choose what we want
1: yeah exactly those are those uh, beliefs and viewpoints that would tend away from what Rawls believes is true democracy. Those are excluded at the outset, which is all traditional religious beliefs. Um, it's, it's all traditional beliefs, period. Uh, anything that differs from, you know, Rawls even admits that essentially the only outcome is liberalism. But he qualifies, there's, you know, some variation of liberalisms that are
0: possible. Now, on the normative side, I mean, your book is mostly positive, but there's so many good lines in it. I mean, it's not hard to see what your opinions are uh, on what democracy should be because our listeners might be like, okay, um, does she think it should just be, you know, if the people want communism and oppression, uh, what what is the point of the system if it's not to produce a more just world in some sense, uh, especially compared to the options we had before the people had any voice in government. Uh, So how should we conceive of democracy more correctly than having this sort of idea that of democratism, that it's uh, it's the enacting of the will of the people if they knew what they really wanted, which is a very like shortened, you know, form of what, what democratism is in your definition, but what's a better version of democracy then?
1: Yeah. I mean, the bulk of the book is really exposing this democratist ideology um, but here and there, I, I suggest that there is an alternative that is more democratic, and the alternative is what paradoxically has been called elitist by these democratists, which is um, the, the vision of, of some of the founders of the U.S. Constitution, for example. John Adams, I think, is one. Or you could go back um, to uh, not a U.S. founder, but to Edmund Burke. His understanding, um, I I talk about Arrestus Brownson, the American um, convert to Catholicism, who was a great admirer of the American system. Um, So uh, these figures, they all put forth an idea of, you could call it democratic republicanism or something, um, where you've got the meaningful input of the people. It's not pure majoritarianism, um, it's not the unmediated will of the majority. It's something where there's a role for democratic leadership. You can have a genuine aristocracy that's not an oligarchy. Um, but you can have these democratic leaders who are able to, um, inspire the best in the people. And, uh, and so, I think if we look at the American founding, that was a good example of a system that's not pure democracy, but it incorporates the meaningful will of the people. And it also takes account of minority interests.
0: There's a subtext. I mean, it's not, it's, I'm surprised you didn't reference it in the book, but uh, I mean, many people have talked about it, but in Thomas Sowell's Conflict of Visions, he talks about the constrained, the constrained vision um, and the unconstrained vision or the tragic vision that there are certain things about humanity that you have to accept as just how things are if you're going to build a democratic system that is not oppressive or based on the supposed will of whoever's leading it um, is that is that part of what we should be doing when we're when we're promoting democracy is say look this system is not going to give you everything you want if you want you know, to rebuild Iraq, if you want to create the general will, if you want to have a, an agrarian, amazing society like Jefferson did, it will not. People will not do that if you let them choose, and we just have to accept that part of what we do with government is let interests compete, let people talk, and see what happens in the end.
1: Yeah, and you you have to begin with what is given. What what are the actual historical practices? Um, and so Edmund Burke is someone who says that uh, a constitution without the means of change is a constitution without the means of its own preservation. And so there has to be some, some way of allowing for change and allowing for organic development, but you can't just expect a wholesale um, change in the people toward a a preordained end. Um, That's where you end up with violent revolution that destroys the existing civil society and, and you end up with something much, much worse. So I think if we're, aiming for some positive change in society, we have to start small because you don't know the law of unintended consequences is powerful. And we don't know exactly what our actions are going to do, especially with um, like something like social policies, those have far reaching consequences. And the federal system in the US is so beautiful, because we can actually see um, state to state what the outcome of certain policies are. So when you have a mass exodus from a place like California to a place like Florida, for example, we can see that, Oh, it looks like people prefer some policies over here and they're, they're not thriving too well under the policies over there.
0: (laughs) Do we see this going, getting worse in the sense, because reading your book, uh, I see democratism as you call it coming from the left and the right in equal measures, maybe at different times, it's it's bigger on some things. But one thing that both parties tend to claim in different ways is that due to various forces that exist in society, the people are not – clear; they don't really know what they want because they haven't been – educated properly, both conservatives and the left says this about the public school system or conservatives rail against the universities saying the universities are corrupting the will of the people or social media is corrupting the will of the people, but the left thinks that corporate media is corrupting the will of the people um, or other sorts of you know nefarious conservative forces like Fox News. And so at the end of the day there's a lot of people in this country who believe, as you pointed out earlier, that people are voting not in their best interest, and if they just knew better and were better informed via some sort of policy, they, they would all more agree with me, which is something I always find. that Most people think that if the, if the debate were fair, whatever that means, they would win it. They would win that debate, uh, right? But because the debate is not fair, uh, their side is losing the debate, and therefore we have to do something to fix democracy if it's not producing the outcomes we want, whether that's coming from the left or the right
1: yeah I think that there's this assumption on the left and the right, as you say that there's a problem um, with information and with education. And the assumption there being that the problem is intellectual rather than moral. And so in my book, I don't I don't know if the subtext is there, but I think I certainly hint at it that the problem is is a moral spiritual problem. It's not an intellectual problem. It's not a problem of rationality. Um, you can make a rational argument for or against any given policy. Um, what it comes down to is, is uh, the moral issue. And so I think that we're only going to see a revival in our country or and in the West more generally um, when we have a, a moral spiritual revival. Uh, it's not about better education or more rigorous rational thinking. Um, it's not going to be a revival that's brought about by logic courses. It's a revival that's going to have to start in the home with the family, with the moral upbringing of children, I believe. I don't, I don't go that far in the book, but um, that's certainly what I believe.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.